please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. This evening we're looking particularly at verses 9 to chapter 4, verse 1. It's a very practical passage. It's the sort of passage that makes me want to say before I begin to preach, if there's one finger pointing at you, remember there are three fingers pointing back at me. Let's read the whole chapter uh, to get Paul's uh, drift. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading from his word. The quality of life is dependent on the quality of our relationships. The quality of life is dependent on the quality of our relationships. I heard that comment made over 30 years ago in an evangelistic sermon. I found it arresting at the time. And as I've thought about it over the years, I've become convinced that it's true. The quality of our life is dependent on the quality of our relationships. When I first heard the comment, the preacher wanted to make the point that the most important relationship we can have is a relationship with God. God made us to be in relationship with him. And the tragedy of the human condition is that we have rebelled against him and become, our, become his enemies. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, our fractured relationship with God can be restored. That vertical relationship is the most important relationship of all. But relationships with fellow human beings, relationships on the horizontal level, also matter. They too contribute to the quality of our lives. And sadly, they too can become strained and even break down altogether. The passage we're looking at this evening is all about relationships. Relationships in the church, relationships in the family, and relationships between masters and slaves. Before we look at the passage in detail, let's put it in context. Paul isn't giving relationship advice like a sort of agony ant, drawing on reserves of common sense and life experience. Paul's comments here have a theological context. He's applying the teaching that he has set out in the earlier part of his letter to the very practical issue of relationships. As so often in his letters, Paul has set out the indicatives, the facts of Christian doctrine. And he now applies that doctrine in a series of imperatives or commands. The facts come first. The imperatives make sense and are capable of being fulfilled only in the context of the facts. What do I mean by that? Well, the church in Colossae to which Paul wrote this letter was under threat from false teachers. False teachers who weren't satisfied with the simple gospel. They claimed to have superior spiritual insight And they wanted the Colossian Christians to develop a fully rounded spirituality by doing certain things and practicing certain rituals. Paul doesn't agree. 
He tells the Colossian Christians that in Christ they have all they need. They don't need any extras. As Christians, they are in Christ. They are united to him. They need nothing more. As Paul says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. In Christ they have died to sin. Through his death on the cross, the penalty they deserve on account of their sin has been fully met, and the power of sin has been broken. And in Christ they have been raised to a new life, The Colossians don't need anything more than they already have. They already have all they need for life and godliness. These are the facts. These are the indicatives. We Christians have a new identity in Christ. But we need to work out the implications of that new identity. We need to become in practice more like the people we already are in terms of basic identity. That's where the imperatives, the commands come in. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul is saying that Christians should live up to who they are in Christ. As Johnny put it two weeks ago, Christians should live with their heads in the clouds. We should make a point of getting to know Christ better and focus on all that is involved in living in and for him. Our new identity calls for a new lifestyle. Last week we saw that that will mean rejecting certain things. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. This evening's passage focuses more on positive behaviors. Verse 12 begins, Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul uses the imagery of taking off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set. In verse 9, he reminds the Colossians that they have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So it's off with the old and on with the new The new self is still a work in progress. It is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But it calls for a radical break with what has gone before. The imperatives of chapter 3 don't mean that the Christian life is reduced to a set of rules. Christians are in Christ We have new life in him. Christ lives in us by his spirit and we share his risen life. We're thus empowered to live the kind of new life which goes with our new self. We don't live the Christian life in our own strength. We can't. Only Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit 
enables us to live the kind of life that pleases him. That's all gloriously true. But for our part, we need to live day by day under his lordship. We need to appropriate all the resources he makes available to us. An old chorus puts it like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christians don't live on autopilot. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work in us. He's in the business of making us more like the Lord Jesus. But we have a contribution to make. We don't simply let go and let God. It takes effort to seek the things that are above. When Paul instructs us in verse 2 to put certain behaviors to death, that's a strong expression. It suggests that deliberate, even drastic action may be required. There's a balance to be struck. Christ lives in us by his Spirit. It's only in the power of the Spirit that we achieve anything at all. But we are expected to cooperate with the Spirit. There are gospel imperatives we must heed. In this evening's passage, we see how a truly Christian lifestyle impacts on relationships in three areas. Relationships are where so often the rubber hits the road. It's in our relationships that our lack of holiness is often most painfully revealed. The section from verse 12 to verse 17 is about relationships in the church. You'll see the repeated mention there of one another and each other. It's worth, though, looking back at verse 11. Look at what Paul says there. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul is saying that the new identity Christians have in Christ takes precedence over any other distinctive characteristics we may have. In the fellowship of the church, all Christians are on level ground. There's no one better than another. We are all simply men and women in Christ. So what are the gospel imperatives for relationships in the church? In verse 12 we're told, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all, verse 14 says, we're to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How can Paul command things like love and humility? Aren't these qualities you either have or you haven't? You're either humble or you're not. You either love someone or you don't. But the Bible speaks of these things in terms of the will. You love someone 
by choosing to act towards them in a loving way. You learn humility by consciously subordinating your own interests to those of others. I saw a practical example of humility this morning. I was late for the morning prayer meeting, and when I arrived, all the seats had been taken. But Scott got up off his seat, sat on the floor, and allowed me to sit down. Now, I know you could put another spin on that scenario, but he was subordinating his own interests to mine. And that's a way in which you learn humility. In this passage, Paul lists several ways of cultivating positive behaviors. In verse 13, he tells us to bear with one another. We're not to take umbrage at the least thing. When a fellow Christian says or does something that really annoys us, there is a place for counting to ten before we respond. Paul tells us to forgive when we are wronged. Why does he say that? Well, as he puts it, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When you find it hard to forgive someone, just think how much the Lord has forgiven you. If the Lord could forgive you so much, then how can you refuse to forgive your fellow Christian for the relatively trivial slight you've suffered at their hands? And then in verse 15, Paul tells us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Christ gives us a deep-seated peace, and he calls us as members of one family to live in harmony with one another. But we have a choice to make. Will we promote peace, or will we let the peace we should enjoy be disrupted? Will we be peacemakers, or peace-breakers. At the end of verse 15, we have three simple words. And be thankful. The theme of thankfulness is picked up again in the two following verses, which speak of thankfulness in your hearts to God, and giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. Be thankful, give thanks, Paul obviously thinks thankfulness is important. And that too is something we can work on. Remember how as a child you were repeatedly encouraged to say thank you. If someone gave you a biscuit, you would hear the words, so what do you say now? And perhaps through gritted teeth, you would say, thank you. Your parents weren't simply teaching you good manners, although they were doing that. They wanted you to learn the importance of gratitude. How can you foster gratitude to God? By saying, thank you. Do you say grace before meals? I suspect it's something that's done less often these days than it used to be. 
Do you stop to give thanks for family and friends and for all the blessings you enjoy day by day? The more you do, the more genuinely appreciative you will become. The more thankful you are, the more contented you'll be. You'll be less likely to harbor jealousy and resentment towards others. Thankful Christians make for a happy and united fellowship. How are we going to live? Well, says Paul in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do what pleases him. Do what's in accordance with his will. Do what will bring him glory. And whatever you say, say in Jesus' name. Say what he would want to hear you say. Say what will reflect well on him. If that were true of all our words and actions, relationships in the church would be truly transformed. As Robin said last week, union with Christ is the key to unity in the local church.